Welcome to the Permaculture Podcast with Scott Mann. This is episode 1614, Gandhian Nonviolence with Chris Moore Backman. Chris is a peace activist from Chico, California, who serves with the Christian peacemaker teams, having recently returned from Palestine, and is the producer of the radio documentary series Bringing Down the New Jim Crow, which explores the movement to end the system of mass incarceration in the United States. Our conversation today is based on his forthcoming book, The Gandhian Iceberg, a Nonviolence Manifesto for the Age of the Great Turning. Today we talk about nonviolence and the three parts to the Gandhian model, self-purification, constructive programs, and satyagraha. I became aware of Chris and his work through conversations with Ethan Hughes, who gave me a rough copy of the Gandhian Iceberg to read. Through that, and time spent at the Possibility Alliance, meeting with members of the Catholic Worker Movement, and others practicing nonviolence and building egalitarian communities, a light went off in my thoughts on how nonviolence is a required component of creating the world espoused by permaculture. That led to this conversation with Chris on how to move from a place of anger and fear to one of compassion and love. As discussions emerge about how the third ethic of permaculture is the least discussed, nonviolence and this Gandhian model provide a way to return this ethic to a proper place in our practice. In a moment, we'll get to the interview with Chris. But before we begin, I'd like to thank the show's sponsors, Good Seed Company, Permikids, and Your Garden Solution. Those latter two are our sponsors of the day. Permikids, created by permaculture practitioner and educator Jen Mendez, is a resource to inspire and nurture teachers, parents, and families interested in adding permaculture education to their lives and those of the children at home or in the community. Through her site, Jen offers a free ongoing podcast where you can learn more about transitioning to a rich, ecologically sound life, including children and learning at every step of the way. If you want to dig deeper, you may be interested in her Community Experiential Education by Design program or the Edge Alliances. Find out more at permikids.com. Your Garden Solution is a Pennsylvania company run by a permaculture practitioner and their business partner that helps people to garden using the techniques developed by Mel Bartholomew and popularized in his book, Square Foot Gardening. In addition to garden installations and education, they also have an excellent soil mix, as well as compost ready for your raised beds. Find out more at yourgardensolution.org. Now then, on to the interview with Chris Moore-Backman. I'll join you again afterwards. Then, Chris, can you give us a bit of your biography and background, how you came to this work of nonviolence, and in particular, the influence of Gandhi on your work? And we can take the conversation from there. Well, the honest answer, when I when I really think about the the beginning point, it takes me back to when I was a, a young boy, actually. I'm, I want to say around seven years old. The very uh, formative experience that I had uh, at an orphanage in Tijuana, Mexico. I grew up in San Diego. And um, the, the church that I was raised within uh, had a sister kind of relationship with a orphanage in Tijuana, and we would go there two or three times a year. And this one time, for whatever reason, I was at an age where my eyes were opened in a certain way, my heart was ready in a certain way to really feel the feel the the true cost and suffering connected to inequity. And as a kid, of course, I didn't think about it in those terms, but, you know, we were on our way to this orphanage, and I was watching, you know, the kind of buildings pass by as, as we were heading in that direction and noticing that the further and further we got from the city center, the more sort of houses were built out of pallets. 
even cardboard and tarps. And I saw children and noticed just their distended bellies and the smell of burning trash and, and all of these things. And like I said, for whatever reason, I think I'd hit an age where, where the discrepancy between that and my comfortable suburban San Diego uh, life really, you know, was, was right there. And uh, I befriended a child that day at the orphanage. He was a couple years younger than me. We didn't share language at all, but we played soccer together and we, we ate some really simple tacos together for lunch. And, and uh, we, we fell in love with each other the way that, that kids do just really quickly. And the moment that was pivotal for me was when we left, when my mom kind of took my hand and it was time to get back in the car and drive back home. And my heart just broke in two. I, I, on some level, knew that there was something incredibly wrong about the fact that I was leaving this child in that situation and going back to the comfort and security of my own. So that's the honest answer of where I'm able to, like the furthest back I'm able to go in terms of my connection to nonviolence. It wasn't until university at UC Berkeley, I took a course taught by Michael Nagler in the fall of 1992, uh, The Theory and Practice of Nonviolence, where I was able to actually put words and concepts to the realization that I had had as a seven or so year old that day in Tijuana. That's something that felt so incredibly wrong on, on the deepest level, that sort of level beyond words, finally was starting to have some language attached to it. And that language came from Gandhi. So I had, you know, known a little bit about Gandhi at that point, but that course really opened up the world of, of nonviolence and his particular philosophy with regards to nonviolence. And uh, you could say, like, uh, I never turned back. You know, I finished that course and then just dove into reading whatever I could get my hands on by Gandhi, about Gandhi, and have kind of been in that mode ever since. You know, 20 plus years later, I'm still uh, investigating that philosophy and and following that that kind of instinct that tells me that there's something about it that is directly connected to my own destiny as a as a human being at this time. So that's that's how it started. So the work that you're doing is very much rooted in the philosophies and practices as espoused by Gandhi and the movement within India in the early 20th century? Or do you also pull in other nonviolent leaders and thought processes and theories into the work that you're doing? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I, I neglected U.S. nonviolence for a long time um, because I was so immersed in in Gandhi and India. And then, um, let's see, it was probably about 10 years ago that I read a book uh, by Vincent Harding about Dr. King. It's called Martin Luther King, The Inconvenient Hero. And I read that book and was just totally blown away by the depth of King's own nonviolence understanding and practice. And of course, as a you know U.S. person, I was aware of of King's commitment to nonviolence and the basics of the civil rights struggle and so forth. But it wasn't until I read that book, which focuses actually on the the years following Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech, where his language and his approach became increasingly radical and uh, I would say increasingly Gandhian. That was when I realized, okay, I need to I need to investigate nonviolence here in the U.S. and what, what our own history and lineage is um, related to nonviolence. So I, I did a master's program, actually, 
under the loving gaze of Dr. Harding, I wrote to him after I read his book and, and said, hey, I, I want to do a self-designed master's program. I found a school where I could do that to uh, focus on Dr. King and the African-American freedom struggle through the lens of what I had learned about Gandhi's approach to nonviolence. And Dr. Harding was happy to, to join me in, in that, in the role of an, of an advisor, as an advisor. And uh, that was an amazing experience where I got to actually interview six veterans of the freedom struggle, the African-American freedom struggle, you know, the chapter that we usually refer to as the civil rights movement. So I got to sit at the, the feet of these incredible men and women who changed our country. And uh, I feel like that was the, the time when I really started to bring the, the experience and wisdom around nonviolence from our own context more and more into my own thinking and drew incredible inspiration from from those particular men and women and also just from the movement itself. So I would say that Gandhi Gandhi has been the the beginning place, but in recent years I've I've put as much or even more of my attention on um, learning about the African American freedom struggle here. And as we talk about this, how would you define this idea of nonviolence as it relates to practice then? Not only how someone might first consider it from a philosophical perspective, but then also how they might embody it. Because there was a book that detailed the history of nonviolence, and I wish I had pulled the title before we sat down to talk. And that started more or less with the early Buddhists in Christ and then worked up through the modern era and talking about how it's strange that we have to use a word like nonviolence is like a negation of violence where really the act of nonviolence isn't not being violent, if you will. Yeah, right. <laughs> that there's a lot more to it than just not lashing out at others or not taking physical action, that there's something bigger and more and deeper to it. Yeah, you know, the... The work that I've I've been doing on this uh, manuscript, you know, the the first my first attempt at a book uh, has has really been and my own effort to clarify what nonviolence actually is, and it's no accident that folks go back to Jesus or or Buddha, because the the simplest definition is that nonviolence is love, and so when people talk about nonviolence as our culture typically sees it, you know, in the way that you're describing, that it's an absence of violence, which usually actually means in conversation in the U.S. context, you know, around nonviolence means that you're not punching anybody in the nose. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's not, it's an absence of physical violence, even. But really what we're talking about is in whatever circumstances we find ourselves, to be nonviolent is to inject as much love as you possibly can into that situation. And so if you consider that as the, as the starting point, you know, as the definition, Gandhi starts to make some sense. And you begin to understand how he believed that nonviolence under no circumstances can it fail. And if we kind of tug on that thread a little bit, then we realize, oh, okay, so even if you inject as much love as you feel like you can into a situation, but you don't get the result that you might be hoping for or that the culture would identify as a successful result. By Gandhian terms, it's still a success because the fact that you have injected love into a situation that needed it is itself the victory. So nonviolence, as, as Gandhi taught it, really turns our whole success narrative, our, our whole sort of cultural success narrative on its head. 
it's not about winning and it's not about getting what we want. Uh, it's about doing the right thing under any and all circumstances. And the paradox is that we see that for the practitioners of nonviolence who really seem to get that and who live that also tend to enjoy a lot of what we would conventionally call success, meaning that their movements that they're, they're a part of or that they spearhead make incredible gains. But again, it is a paradox because the more that I dig into Gandhi's teaching and, and what he modeled, the more I see that we're somehow more powerful when we're not trying to win, but when we're just trying to do the right thing. To have that be the engine of our action, and the more that that is the engine of our action, the more amazing things that, that seem to happen. And they might be things that we can see right then and there, but often they're things that will come to be later, perhaps even after we're dead and gone. But that as we bring nonviolence into any situation, we're planting seeds that will bear nonviolent fruit at some point somewhere. And the same goes for violence. If we respond instead with, with violence of any form, be it physical or, you know, be it ill will or deceit or any you know, any of those more invisible forms, those two will bear their fruit somewhere down the line. I don't know if that answers where you were, you know, what you were getting at with the definition for nonviolence, what we're actually talking about, but at least that's heading in the direction that I think Gandhi would point us in. From the cultural context that I come from, the idea of acting in a way that is to do the right thing, whether or not it achieves your goals, or as you say, wins, is a strange idea to try to wrap my head around in the moment. I can understand injecting love and everything else, but I'm so used to being goal-driven or outcome-driven that just doing it because it's the best thing to do, yes, it seems strange in a larger social context where you're trying to bring about some kind of transformation or change. Yeah, it's strange to me too. And and it's, well, it's something I think we all need to really wrestle with. You know, I'm, I'm looking, I'm just kind of thumbing through my manuscript here, and I'm looking for this quote, Brene Brown, who's a, you know, sort of popular author these days. She has a book called uh, Rising Strong, and another one called Daring Greatly, where she's talking about overcoming our shame and really living into, you know, full and magnificent lives by kind of clearing our way to, to hear our true vocation. She says... What's worth doing even if I fail? That's a nice question that she asks that I think, again, points us to the spirit of Gandhian nonviolence. And then another one that I was uh, including here in, in my book is a friend of mine, Will Braun. He wrote an article about Jesus and what Will sees as his sort of botched career as an activist. <laughs> he talks about it as holy failure. And so these these concepts of holy failure and, and Brene Brown's question of what's worth doing even if I fail, I feel like it's at this uh, this confusing place that I think we need to we need to go to because I think that the desire for success and to quote win is in itself an expression of the paradigm that we need to scrap. And again, I think it is paradoxical because I I tend to to feel that. If and when we're able to move from that place of doing the right thing, no matter what, good will come of that. It may not be the good that we are hoping for in the shape or form that we're even striving for. Um, but Gandhi would say that being detached from that end result is a great virtue because God, and that's the language he would use, God only knows the best outcome in the end. <laughs> 
But if we keep our means pure and our, our intentions pure, then only good will come of it. But it's very disorienting, like you're saying. And I don't, I don't pretend to, to have like arrived at <laughs> that way of being. I'm still very goal-oriented myself. And it's not right to say that we shouldn't be goal-oriented. Gandhi was an incredibly goal-oriented person. You know, not least among his goals was independence from the British Empire. This is not a this is not a small you know, sort of endeavor, and yet setting goals without the attachment to the results is the key. And that was the the lesson that he learned from the Bhagavad Gita, which was really his spiritual resource book, was to strive for justice, to strive for reconciliation and restored community, but to not become attached to to the outcomes, but just do the work and trust that, that uh, God, the universe, will, will answer as needed. This piece that we're both kind of struggling over yeah. <laughs> in understanding this, you know, your many years of doing this and feeling as if you haven't arrived, and me just on the very beginnings of this journey, you know, some of my practices have been to try to be more present through acts of meditation and other things to be in the moment, yeah. as well as to... I have found that removing myself from the attachment, which was something that I never understood when I was reading about Buddhism before, but so something that Ethan and I talked about was that if we don't tell a story, if we don't bring myth and meaning into something, but just allow our, ourselves to observe something as it is, that for me, that's allowed me to remove some attachment to something because I don't start building up a narrative that isn't necessarily subjectively or objectively true. And I find that it's a really comfortable space to work from. But man, is it hard. Oh, yeah. But I think that that speaks to one of the pieces that I really took from what I've read of your work so far and what I understand of the salt march. And that so often what we wind up seeing are the results of an action or the action that someone takes, which is this very, very small piece of all the work that has gone into getting there. And I never realized how many years of preparation Gandhi and his followers went through to go on that march. And I was wondering if you could speak some about this iceberg model that you have mm -hmm. for, was it Gandhi that used the phrase personal purification? Self-purification. Uh -huh. And in the like the modern context within the permaculture community and elsewhere, I think of it as personal transformation or self-transformation is a way that I relate to that. But then there's also the constructive program and my horrible pronunciation of this, the Satyagraha. Satyagraha, yeah. Could you speak a little bit about those ideas and how they relate to this iceberg model and how we move through many years of each of these to come to the final action? Sure. Yeah, so the iceberg is is sort of my rendering of a description of Gandhian nonviolence that dates back at least to Gene Sharp in the 70s. I think it was the 70s, yeah, when he identified these three overlapping elements of the Gandhian approach, self-purification, constructive program, and satyagraha. And the iceberg, if you just picture an iceberg floating in the water, self-purification would be the, that enormous part of the glacier that's underneath the surface of the water, sort of the most foundational and, uh, you know, the biggest part of the chunk of ice. Above the water is constructive program, and uh, constructive program was the work of social uplift and renewal at the community level. A lot of people don't realize that Gandhi spent most of his time not on the front lines of, you know, political action, but in the nitty-gritty uh, work of 
of social reform at the village level and promoting that, you know, throughout the nation. And then if you look at the proverbial tip of the iceberg, uh, that would be Satyagraha. And that, that word is the Gandhi original, which he came up with as a corrective to the phrase passive resistance, which was in common usage at the, at the time. And he wanted to, you know, really clearly communicate that there's nothing passive about what we're doing here uh, when we engage with the forces of domination and empire head-on, nonviolently. And so Satyagraha was the word he coined for nonviolent resistance. Satya means truth. Graha means to cling to, to adhere to. So it means literally adherence to truth or clinging to truth, which uh, in the Sanskrit also implies soul and the strength of soul, so it's often referred to as soul force. So these three parts really give the the book I'm working on its structure. I examine self-purification first and then move on to constructive program and then move on to satyagraha. And the argument that I'm trying to make is that what Gandhi really modeled for us was that the balancing of all three of these is absolutely necessary for deep-rooted, abiding you know, social change, not just policy reform or, you know, cosmetic changes, but actual structural, long-lasting change. And as you mentioned, the Salt March is a great example of uh, a campaign that Gandhi led that had all three of these elements in a beautiful balance. The Salt March, most people don't realize, was a sacred pilgrimage. And Gandhi spoke of it in those terms from the very beginning. Before they set out on the march, he wrote articles making sure that people were rooted in that understanding, that this was a sacred pilgrimage to the sea. The 78 members of his ashram who launched the march all had their spinning wheels in hand. They were spinning cotton as a form of constructive program to reclaim the lost cottage industry of, of hand spinning. But spinning was also what Gandhi called a sacrament. He said this is a form of prayer. And so as they spun an hour a day, they did so in silence. And he encouraged folks to repeat their mantra or hold prayer in whatever way you know, made sense for them. So the practices of the ashram went with the marchers as they, as they made their way to the seashore. And salt in itself represented another lost cottage industry that was incredibly important, especially to the poor who lived near the seashores uh, in India. And so Gandhi identified here another constructive program possibility, right? That we can reclaim another concrete industry that the British have monopolized or making money off of for you know, the manufacture and distribution of salt. This part of our own natural environment that you know, we should have access to like we, we have you know, forever. So to reclaim that was an expression of constructive program in a really powerful way. And then when Gandhi you know, raised the fistful of salt illegally, you know, defying the, the law uh, that, that safeguarded Britain's monopoly on salt, that was the signal for the whole nation to begin different campaigns of civil disobedience uh, throughout the country. So it set off a firestorm of, of nonviolent action in cities and villages throughout the nation. So that's the part we usually hear about. 
that political sort of, you know, headline-grabbing part of the salt satyagraha. But it did have these other elements of self-purification and constructive program. And my argument is that in the United States context, very rarely do we ever see a nonviolent campaign that includes all three of these elements. And my hypothesis and my sort of call on the book is, let's get with this and see what happens. You know, if we can imbue our political action with these foundational uh, aspects of self-purification and constructive program. So the 78 ashramites who launched the march had been living in community and sharing spiritual practice on a daily basis and working constructive program in their own community for a period of 15 years before Gandhi discerned that it was time for that group of, of folks to demonstrate for the rest of the nation the meaning of satyagraha. So what he was basically saying was that satyagraha, for it to be satyagraha, needs to be rooted in these other two elements. Otherwise, it's it's not actually uh, nonviolence in its you know in its full and true form. So there's a lot behind it. And the other piece that I think is important to recognize is that it wasn't until 16 years after the Salt March that independence was actually granted. So a lot of people after the Salt March and the year of you know, civil disobedience campaigns that followed it were deeply, deeply disappointed that the campaign, that the result was not independence immediately. But Gandhi knew that the writing was on the wall, not because of any particular policy change or, or anything that the, the British establishment said in response, but because he could tell that a shift had been made within the Indian people themselves, that they were beginning, as he said, to straighten their spines, you know, to stand up and embody their full stature as human beings. So 16 years later, independence was actually granted. And the, the sad part of the story is that at that point, Gandhi actually felt that they had moved too fast because the independence came with the partition of India and Pakistan and the you know, unbelievably horrific bloodshed that happened uh, with that partition. So despite what looks like victory in the history books of Indian independence, by Gandhi's standards, it was, it was actually a, a horrible outcome. And uh, he sadly uh, blamed himself largely for that, that he felt like he, he moved too quickly in his leadership and mistook how far along the nation was in its understanding of nonviolence. It's a very deep dynamic, the way that these pieces interplay, as well as hearing Gandhi's critique of his own work, mm -hmm. that in a way those end results occurred, but not in a way that were as deeply embodied of the ideas that led to them. Yeah. And if you look at modern India, the cliche of someone rolling over in their grave, you know, it's like Gandhi would be... Uh, the, the, the despair that he would feel if he could see modern India, you know, with nuclear weapons and unbelievable pollution and the continuing ravages of poverty and the violence between Hindus and Muslims and the persistence of you know, oppression of the Dalit, you know, formerly called untouchable community. And I mean, all the things that he strove for. It's the first first sentence of my my book is this quote of a. Gandhian, contemporary Gandhian, who says, Gandhi is our greatest failure. 
then he, he goes on to list all of Gandhi's priorities. And uh, yeah, none of them were, were actually seen through. And yet, I and so many other people recognize that what Gandhi taught is just this incredible gift. And that if we can if we can continue to experiment with it with the same devotion and creativity that he did, and Dr. King and others have done, that you know great things are going to happen. And now that we're faced with the the existential crisis of climate change, never a better time to try to get this stuff rolling full power. Where do you see in this evolution and now some of the modern acts of activism and call for nonviolence? You mentioned that you don't see all of these pieces integrated from the Gandhian movement into the modern movement. Where do you see as a place where we could begin to integrate more of these ideas? Where, if you will, are the biggest failures right now in the modern nonviolent movement? That's a great question. I, You know, my focus has been on trying to, you know, a lot of people will, will sort of poo-poo the preaching to the choir sort of idea. And yet, I'm putting a lot of, of my focus right now on trying to assemble the choir and and have have the choir preach to itself, meaning that I think one of the greatest failures of the nonviolence movement is that those of us who have been convicted by the Gandhian approach, who feel like it's a great gift to humanity, have not gotten ourselves together. We haven't suited up in the same uniform, developed a, a really clear set of guiding principles and practices you know, a code of conduct for our own action. In a sense, we haven't pulled ourselves together in the way that Gandhi did at the ashram so that there could be this nucleus that could demonstrate for the wider community what this stuff actually looks like. A lot of us have, have been embedded in movements that have maybe Gandhian influence or, you know, give a respectful nod to Gandhi, but we haven't made it a priority to find one another and to say, okay, this is the gift that we have to bring to the wider struggle for justice, a demonstration of, of this Gandhian peace, which I think will act as a leaven in the larger social justice movement struggle. Some of that is led by folks who aren't steeped in Gandhi but are steeped in some other approach. Um, but I think that those of us who are connected to this lineage uh, need to get together and bring our gift to the party. So that's one of the main weaknesses. I would say in a, in a more general sense that the lack of of acknowledgement and of and focus on self-purification is enormously costly. You know the tendency in the US context what I've seen is that we seek kind of a, a political solution first and then we might work on a constructive alternative in the spirit of constructive program and then a few of us take seriously the work of, you know, radical personal reformation. So we've kind of got the Gandhian recipe backwards. You know, Gandhi really emphasized that self-purification is is the foundation. From there, you move into the, the work of building the alternative, building the new society within the shell of the old. The political work only comes into play when the constructive work of building the new society is obstructed by when empire gets in the way of that, that's when we engage with empire. So I think that 
that would be another big help, is if we could try to change the narrative within the nonviolence community to really emphasize self-purification as the foundation instead of it being sort of an optional, you know, add-on sort of extracurricular activity that on the side we're, we're trying to remove those, those big inner blocks in our spiritual and, you know, in our psyches that keep us from actually being willing to give our, our whole selves to this, to this struggle. And to uh, yeah, put the great turning, as Joanna Macy and others are calling it, at the center of our lives. I think that that block that we that we feel is is um, is because of our well, the the thing that can remove the block to being willing to putting that at the center of our lives is spiritual practice and investigation. And so if we have that as just sort of an optional add-on, we're not going to get there. For you, what are the acts and practices of personal purification? Yeah, you know, it's been interesting for me to kind of track my own relationship with that sphere of the the three-part process. And what I've noticed is that it's constantly changing. Most recently, the the practices that have been most uh, impactful a couple years ago would have taken me completely by surprise. Actually, one of them I would have laughed at you if you told me, and that is um, a dance practice. And I don't dance. Like, you even asked me a couple years ago, or if you told me, you know, Chris, in a couple years you're going to be dancing as part of your spiritual practice, I would have said, yeah, right. No way. But uh, a couple of really close friends of mine, when I was in a really despairing place in my life a few years ago, said, you know, you should try this five rhythms dance practice. And uh, that's been an incredibly powerful spiritual practice for me of learning, really learning just to be in relationship with my body and to listen to my body and to recognize that a lot of the wounds that I carry are held in my body. And there are messages that my body can give me about about my own healing that with time, I, I'm actually happy to say I'm starting to learn how to hear those messages. So that's been a big one. Another another one is called the Presence Process. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. It's actually a book as well by a guy named Michael Brown. And uh, that's a, a much more uh, sort of introspective process that he's charted out a 10-week uh, sort of, I don't know what, how you would describe it. It's a 10-week program um, that really builds and builds and builds. And it's all about integrating our emotional charges and going all the way back to our early early childhood and getting in touch with, as I've experienced it, those places where I was hurt and as a child I had I had learned, I think from the culture and to some extent from my from my family to squash my emotional responses to things that hurt or dismayed me. And uh and as I put, as I pushed those down uh, and kept them at, at bay, they didn't just disappear. They they stayed inside me, inside my consciousness. And and so what Brown is really encouraging people is that where we are now in the present is that when we feel emotions welling up, to not push them away, but to fully experience them without it, attaching stories to them, without trying to make difficult feelings go away, but just letting them be what they are and being with them and in that way integrating them and in a sense sort of embracing them as part of our whole experience as a person. 
So I would say the combination of that practice and the dance practice has been super potent for me. Those are examples of ones that I've been doing at this stage in my life. In other periods of my life, sitting meditation has been the core of my practice. I still do that, but not with the same kind of rigor as in other periods of my life. Uh, walking in the wilderness is a big part of my you know, spiritual practice. Uh, honestly, soccer, playing soccer is part of my spiritual practice. And some people kind of think that's funny, but I've, I've come to see that in terms of practicing present, uh, when I'm on the soccer field, I'm in that zone of oneness with the present moment in a way that I rarely experience in meditation. <laughs> and I just have accepted that that's true. And um, I've noticed that when I don't play, I play soccer twice a week, that when I miss it, like right now I have an injury, I have a cold calf muscle, so I've, I've been out for a couple weeks, I really feel the lack of, of the nourishment I get from that present moment experience. So I think what I'm saying in, in, in bringing soccer into it is that I want to encourage people, and I encourage myself to be open to not just accepting the definitions of spiritual practice that have been handed down to us. You know, spiritual practice is supposed to look like sitting meditation or praying in church or, you know, these different things that have gotten the stamp of approval from the culture. But I know that some people, you know, gardening or preparing a meal or playing with their, their child, you know, whatever it is that's actually connecting us with that, which is more, that which is the great mystery, that's the stuff we're after. Those personal practices that are deeply nourishing and fulfilling for the individual, whatever they may be? Yeah, and not, not in the sense of that they bring us pleasure, per se, but that we feel a, a sense of deeper connection. And for me, it's, it's when I feel an experience of awe or wonder that I, I kind of get the sense I'm on the right track. When I feel myself blending in with everything. For anyone who wants to start down this path of nonviolence, as you've shared with us today in the Gandhian tradition, where would you recommend that they begin? Are there resources or books or other things like that that you could suggest for people to start down this road? I've written my own book in part because what, what I've found is, is that there are a lot of wonderful resources out there, and yet a lot of the folks that I know who are really committed to this threefold approach. There hasn't been, you know, one book that you could sort of point to that says, yeah, this really captures that. Most books that deal with it do so in sort of a tangential way. So keep your eyes out for a book called The Gandhian Iceberg, which I hope will be released this year. I'm going to print off a few hundred copies of it myself and make those available as I look for a publisher who can hopefully do, you know, a bigger you know, bigger outreach. That said, I would say that Michael Nagler's book, The Search for a Nonviolent Future, is a great resource. It's a, it's a really good way in. I would also encourage people to connect with the people they know who embody nonviolence of this caliber, you know. There are individuals around us who, who live this way, whether or not they speak of it in terms of Gandhi. But to really spend time with those folks and sit down with them and ask them to tell stories about their life and their own practice and their own journey. I think that is just incredibly valuable. 
um, to, to seek out m- mentors or for those of us who are not elders ourselves, to seek out elders uh, who can give us a good steer. And also to connect with, with communities that are experimenting with this. You mentioned Ethan Hughes before, who's one of the founders of the Possibility Alliance in, uh, in Missouri. There's the new community project in Harrisonburg, Virginia, the Be the Change project in Reno, Nevada, Canical Farm in Oakland, California. There's a variety of places that are taking this um, holistic, comprehensive approach to nonviolence really seriously and, and having a lot of fun while they do it. And so I would encourage folks to, to try to connect with those folks too. And if someone would like to get in touch with you after listening to this interview, they'd like to read your book before it goes to mainstream press, could they do that? Yeah, yeah, they could. Um, I would suggest sending an email to me and, and then I could send a digital copy of the manuscript. It's still in progress, but it's it's complete. I'm just you know, doing the final sort of touches on it. So my, my email is morebackman, M-O-O-R-E-B-A-C-K-M-A-N at gmail.com. I'm not much of an emailer, but I, I do get on a couple times a week and will be happy to send the manuscript to folks. And when the actual book is out, I'll, I'll be happy to let people know how to get that too. And I'll ensure that your email address is included in the resource section of the show notes so people can get in touch with you. Great. Do you have any final thoughts for the listeners after our time together today? I think final thoughts that I might share, there's a way in which I feel like our conversation has been sort of in the philosophical and somewhat theoretical realm, you know, and I guess just wanting to encourage folks to take it to the concrete level and to really begin to experiment with with these three aspects, these three essential components of Gandhi's approach, and to see see what that's like to try to balance in our day-to-day lives the self-purification. You know, I I guess I want to clarify what I mean and what I think Gandhi meant by self-purification. It's not spiritual practice in the sense that we're we're doing this kind of inner work to get clear about, you know, our true motivation and to, to connect as much as possible with with the divine. That's a huge part of it, but the the second step of self-purification is to then bring those innermost principles that we've gotten in touch with into alignment with our outward behavior. So this is why you see Gandhi, you know, shedding his British three-piece suit for the loincloth. And this is why you see him moving out of the two-story brick house in South Africa to the mud hut in a village in central India. This is why you see Gandhi riding the rail in India in the third class compartment, even while he's the most famous person in the nation. So aligning principle with practice is really what we're talking about with self-purification. You can only do that if you if you dig in to that inner work deeply enough to find out what our innermost compass really directs us towards. But once we start getting those signals, if we want to follow Gandhi's lead, we need to put that into practice. And so there's the personal self-purification level of that, but then constructive program invites us to take that out into the community as well, those same principles, and say, how can I bring these principles into alignment? How can we at the community level bring these principles into alignment? And that's where it gets really exciting. You know, you see a lot of this in our U.S. context. And permaculture, I think, is a great example of that, where you see a lot of people doing wonderful projects to bring these kinds of things into alignment. And then in terms of the Satyagraha, you know, there are 
some really exciting opportunities coming up. Uh, a lot to do with climate action, but the most exciting are the ones that get that the climate justice is in no way, shape, or form separate from the other justice struggles, whether that's Black Lives Matter and, and mass incarceration or mass deportation or human trafficking, or homelessness, any of the issues that our society is struggling with are related in a, in a deep, deep way to the climate change crisis. And so keep an eye out for ways to, to plug into the action that's either happening now or that's right on the horizon so that we can get out of the theoretical conversations and move into experimentation. And we're going to make lots of mistakes, and, and that's okay. We'll learn from them and, and keep going. Thank you, Chris, for everything that you shared with us today. It's a lot to consider, and I know that I have a lot more work to really begin to even understand what nonviolence means truly and deeply beyond the act of not taking physical action towards someone. So as I continue to explore this, I look forward to being able to continue to follow your work and to share it with others so that we can all be able to understand this better and bring it into our own lives and our own practices. Thank you for starting this conversation with me today. Thanks a lot, Scott. And I, I really appreciate what you do to, you know, to bring conversations that matter out into the open. It's a really important part of the work to generate these, these conversations. That's where, where change you know, begins. I appreciate you for that. And that was Chris Moore-Backman. You can contact him at moorebackman at gmail.com and find out more about his work via the links in the resource section in the show notes. Creating a more bountiful world requires peace and nonviolence. To continue to exist under old methods and modes that create feelings of scarcity and result in violence and oppression don't fit within the ethics of permaculture. A new revolution is required led by the practices of self-purification, constructive programs, and satyagraha. Should you choose to embrace this path, and I suggest at the very least that you explore it further, there are additional resources in the notes for this episode that include links to the Meta Center for Nonviolence, as well as a series of free books on nonviolence from the Albert Einstein Institute, and further articles on Satyagraha and the power of nonviolence. With this, I would also recommend checking out the work of Charles Eisenstein and others who are talking about moving towards a gift economy, as I find that Many of the alternative economic systems that are presented within permaculture and other radical circles are also very useful in creating more equality in the way in which we value the time of others, as well as the resources that we use in order to create this life that we live. Along the way, if I can assist you, wherever you are, get in touch. My phone number is 717-827-6266. Email is show at permaculturepodcast.com. If digital means are not your preferred way to reach out, you can also drop something in the mail. That address is The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. To connect with the show and other listeners, you can become a sustaining member at patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast or make a one-time donation via PayPal to show at thepermaculturepodcast.com. On Facebook, search for The Permaculture Podcast with Scott Mann. On Twitter, I am at permaculturecst. I'm also using Instagram quite a bit. You can find me there as Permaculture Podcast. From here, I'll be on the road in April, returning to Berea, Kentucky in the Clear Creek community. On April 23rd, 2016, we're holding Spring into Permaculture, hosted by the Clear Creek Schoolhouse, and the day starts at noon and heads on into the evening with a potluck and in-person recording the podcast, 
while earlier in the day, Jeremy Zimmerman, author of Make Mead Like a Viking, will be teaching a mead-making workshop. Find out more at clearcreekschoolhouse.org. After that, on June 18, 2016, Emma Huvos of the Riverside Project is hosting the Mid-Atlantic Permaculture Convergence outside of Charlestown, West Virginia. In addition to Michael Judd being the keynote speaker, Joel Glansberg is also scheduled to join us, provided his newborn doesn't arrive a little too early, to share their experiences on practicing permaculture for many years. There will also be workshops and classes on living in the gift, animals in permaculture, broadacre permaculture, whole systems learning, as well as plant walks and tree ID sessions. As this event is limited to 100 tickets, pick up yours today at midatlanticpermacultureconvergence.eventbrite.com. And of course, you'll find links to that, how to connect to the show, and everything else in the show notes. As there's quite a bit in the queue, I don't know what our next episode's going to be. Will it be another conversation with Ethan Hughes about conflict transformation? An interview with Jesse Peterson of Inside Edge Design, along with Penny Livingston Stark to talk about creating design courses that are more inclusive for families, or another roundtable recording with two to choose from, the second part of the Philadelphia session or the first part of the Baltimore recordings. Hmm. I don't know yet, but we'll see what happens. Until the next time, spend each day creating the world that you want to live in by practicing permaculture and taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.